Well, a very warm welcome. Thank you so much uh, for asking me to come. It's a real privilege. Uh, bring to you the greetings of the church in Bedford, uh, Grace Community Church, where I serve on the leadership team. Uh, I've been uh, there a long time, moved to Bedford in 1978, um, married to Jenny and four children, and then eventually went into church leadership, and I've been involved in uh, the same church uh, for over 30 years as uh, one of the elders of the church. And we've planted a couple of churches, and the church has gradually grown, and uh, Yes, now as a congregation of uh, over 400 of us, and passionate about reaching uh, the, the rest of Bedford. As people say, it's not so much how many are in that you need to be worried about, it's how many are out. And in Bedford, it's a borough of 160,000 people, I guess, on a Sunday. If you add up all the churches, uh, less than 10,000 people would be uh, in, in a church of any kind. So 150,000 people unchurched. And that is... That is our mission, and we set ourselves a goal. We'd love to be a church that has 1% of our town coming along, and we'd love to be part of a Christian movement, at least at least 10% of the town. A lot of other evangelical churches in the town, we get together, we share that vision. Wouldn't it be wonderful if a, a tipping point of 10%, but even that sounds pathetic, doesn't it? 10%, still 90% out there on, outside of Christ. Well, that's our passion and our vision. And I know that's the vision and passion you share too. So it's great to come to you and try and help you and stimulate some thinking this morning. Gospel-shaped leadership. Um, been so easy, I guess, to talk about our own personal relationship with God, and that would be important. So much where the gospel shapes us as individuals, and if we have a leadership responsibility. Uh, but I, I thought rather than do that, one of the default mode of British evangelicalism is what we call pietism. It, is, it, it tends to sort of look in and as long as I'm, you know, rightly, we need to be people who are humble. We need to be people who are prayerful. We need to be people who are godly. And I, I, I don't want to sort of downplay any of that, but we hear a lot of that. Uh, cousins in other parts of the world, as it were, they, they're, they're much more can-do and they, they perhaps need a lot of what we're good at. But we could perhaps learn from what they've learned too. And what I thought today... Rather than looking at sort of personal qualities of your own relationship with God and how that affects you as a leader, I want to look at leadership in action. I want to look at it at the heat of the battle. But what do, you, what do you see, what do you learn when you see gospel leaders in action? And of course the place to go is the book of Acts. So we're going to just a quick, just kind of one, one quick look at Acts uh, in terms of its structure actually. And I'm going to start off uh, with this... Um, when the day of Pentecost came, suddenly, suddenly. Uh, you imagine that. Uh, a church that was 120 people is really lovely church. Uh, if you're in a church around that size, it is the ideal size. Uh, a, a, a church leader can know everybody. They all know him. You know, recognise new people. They get a warm welcome. They get a cup of coffee. They get a car- parking space on Maldon Road and all the rest of it. You know, it's a, it's a very nice size, and everybody sort of feels family, and and it's relational and it's warm and you know, it's nice. And then by the evening, there are three thousand one hundred and twenty. You you wouldn't like that. If that happened to you, you'd really then you'd be emailing, twittering, you know texting the pastor and say, what has gone wrong with our lovely church? It was so warm and friendly and everybody knew everybody and now there's all these strangers and, and we've just seen the most amazing day. And yet when growth comes, sometimes Christians don't always warmly appreciate it. But that's what happens in Acts. The church grows. 
the gospel does amazing things. Now, two things I want to point out here. First, how leadership in the book of Acts and then gospel growth in the book of Acts. So we don't big ourselves up too much as leaders. This is what it seems to me leadership looks like in the book of Acts. It's like a white water rafting. 120 of you, place of safety, meeting in the upper room, confident that Jesus is risen from the dead. And then, all of a sudden, it all goes haywire. You go from that place of safety down into a tunnel of chaos, uh, where church life can feel very uneasy. Uh, I like this one particularly. Uh, this guy here, see that one He's the leader of the expedition. He's guiding the boat. As, now this is really important. If you're in church leadership, this is how it feels like when Acts begins to happen. So rather than say, oh, the leaders are amazing. We've got fantastic leaders in our church. and They're really taking our church forward. In the Acts, they, they, they're holding on for dear life. It's like They never know what's going to happen next. Church growth in the book of Acts is what God the Holy Spirit is doing. And the leaders are just about clinging on and hoping to get the church through the next challenge it faces. It's important to say that because so often uh, in the literature, you know, it's all about oh, these great leaders and they just do amazing things. And but it, but it isn't like that in the Book of Acts. The Book of Acts is like whitewater rafting. You're in a ton of chaos. You're clinging on for dear life, but eventually you come out into these place of joyful achievement, a place of look what God has done. And our leaders have helped steer us a bit. But it's God at work. Now, uh, David Gooding, and he's quite brilliant, um, he's a professor of Greek, he's retired now in um, Northern Ireland, he, he argues that the book of Acts are structured not so much around the, the ministry of Peter and the ministry of Paul, some people see it in like two bits like that, uh, nor is it even geographical, uh, you know, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, it's not a geographical divide. It's structured around its growth phases. And uh, there are these markers. Um, you can see them now. i just run through them. So the first one, after the Pentecost, and, and I'm going to look at it in, our next, in the seminar I'm doing, uh, the three great counterattacks of the devil, the church grows, and then it's just kind of, kind of calm. It gets to one of those through, kind of come to a pool where we can go for a while. And then it's not long before it goes into another series of rapids, but then it comes out the other end of that. The church throughout Judea Galilee and Samaria until the time of peace, it's strength and encouraged by the way it grew in numbers living in the field world. Gooding marks these up. The New Testament church is not embarrassed about growing. It's not even no, it's not embarrassed about numbers. You know, three thousand, five thousand, then loads. I mean how many is that? I don't know how many is that. And that's all in Jerusalem. I had a guy once who'd really ticked me off. Um, our church wasn't just growing slowly and he came along, I don't know at the time, I, we'd perhaps been 250, 300 people and he came along for about a month and he collared me in a car park and said, I, don't, I think it's wrong. The, the Bible doesn't teach, you know, churches shouldn't be this size. This is just wrong. It's, it, churches should be family and small and relational. And I said, what about Jerusalem? He said, well, they were being told off by God. And I go, what are you talking about? You know, but he got this mindset that it's got to be limited in numbers in order to be relational. Well, the Holy Spirit didn't think so. And the church keeps growing. Luke keeps marking them. Acts 12, the word continued to spread. The churches are strengthened through numbers. 
the word of the Lord spread, grew in power, and then finally comes to the end of Acts 2. two. Now, Gooding argues, I think, quite convincingly, <coughs> that Acts is structured around these tunnels of chaos. It can be persecution, it can be Paul thrown in prison, it could be, uh, you know, James murdered, and then the, the church then has a period of quiet where it takes stock, and each time he looks back and goes, and the church has grown. It's grown in numbers, it's grown in holiness, it's grown in closeness to God. Acts is about the church growing. And leadership are part of that, but the leaders don't make that happen. We're not in a leader-led, you know, we just need to get these great guys, and if we got them, then the church would just... No, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And he uses leaders to help steer a bit and and guide, and we're going to see some of that in a few moments' time. But the church is growing by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is still in action today. He is with us. Remember, uh, we were at home last week, um, just kicked off a a series, uh, one of our other pastors, and book of Ezekiel. First great lesson of Ezekiel 1 to the people who felt that they were cut off far from God. The 21st century is never going to see great Christian growth because it's just tough. Ezekiel has this amazing vision, doesn't he, of the throne chariot of God racing across the earth and saying, I am God. And I am as much God here as I was in Jerusalem. Don't don't ever think otherwise. Well, that's true for us. That great throne chariot of God can race across the centuries as well as around the world. God is God. He's our God. He's fully God. He's here. And he's active. So we need to be people to see that two lessons, that church growth in the book of Acts <coughs> humbles us as leaders. If you, if you think there's something, be careful. We're, we're helping to sort of navigate some of those tunnels of chaos, but it's not our brilliance, wisdom, strategy, skills. It's God at work, and we should, we should be hugely encouraged by that. Okay, we just uh, I think that comes to the end of that PowerPoint. Yeah, great. I just wanted to... Just something I'm going to reflect on now, uh, just to help you. What, so in that position as a leader, <coughs> some white paper in here. I, just a, a thing to reflect on. What do you do as a leader in the midst of that picture? I've got a curved things here. I just wanted to just throw out for you. This is this is a kind of classic bell-shaped curve. Uh, if you've done maths, stats, you'd have come across the bell-shaped curve. It's, important curve as we as we look at acts and see growth growth in one sense is a very natural thing isn't it something starts it grows it develops it matures it plateaus it gradually dies uh, you know that's the life cycle of a plant or a tree sometimes over a, a couple of months sometimes over a couple of hundred years and churches too can have a, a kind of we were birthed, our church was birthed with 12 people in 1972. started with just 12 people and it's grown slowly. Now, as leaders, part of the tunnel of chaos that we have to sort of reflect on, what are we doing as we... We need to recognise we're, we're part of these growth cycles of churches. Um, and, and it can be very exciting. Some of you are in the church plants at early days. And, and you might be saying, no, we... We started with 20 of us, and now we're up to 40. And yeah, that's very exciting. It's really exciting. Some of you might be, oh, are we, you know, where are we on this? Where are we on this? Now, why is this important? Because you know what? 
Christians love, the bit they love the most, is when they get to about here. They get to that bit where they've worked hard, made lots of changes, new people have come, you've taken them on board, and then you go, can we just enjoy this? Can we just enjoy this? Now you have different size dynamic figures in your brain of what you would like to enjoy. But that top end of medium, the top end of medium is it's seductively lovely. Okay? When you're 25 or 30, you know you're a couple of families away from extinction, don't you? Two people move, two families move, you go, oh no, we've gone from 25 to 15. And then, Ugh. You get up to around 40, you go, oh, it's quite nice, but it's still a little bit, you know, finances are tight, we'd love to see some more conversion. But when you get up to the sort of 80, 90, 100, 100, 110, 120, you go, great, this is nice. We could have a family move, but that's okay. In fact, families are coming. People are coming. And they've got gifts and skills and money and talent. Wow, this is really lovely. And I know Ray, and Ray knows me, and Ray visits me, and we go down his time for lunch. And, and if someone's got a problem in the church, we will pray and we'll share. And that's a lovely size to be. It's like having a ten-year-old. Uh, ten-year-olds at the top end of being a child, so they know how the whole thing works. They get dressed, they get their lunchbox, they make sure they get to school, and they do their homework. Hormones haven't kicked in, they're not out until 4 o'clock in the morning. You know, you don't have to worry yet about substance abuse. They're not going to get pregnant, they're not going to get somebody pregnant. 10 is beautiful for them, and it's great for you. But it only lasts a year. <laughs> and if you've got a 10 year old, take out an insurance policy. No. We, we had four, uh, two boys, two girls, uh, all two years apart. I had four teenagers at one time. Amazing, I'm still alive. Um, but you'd love to freeze it, but you can't, you see. And just as Christians love to kind of, oh, I'm really enjoying this stage of church life, it won't be long before. It, it won't be so lovely. Now, how long this plateau period is? Well, it, it might be five years, ten years. But let me tell you, if you stay in a church of 120 people for 25 years, it's no fun at all. It's no fun at all. Because you begin to think, people are not going to get saved because we've not seen many saved. People who I befriended have not become Christians. People who you've befriended, they've not become Christians. Our church has actually become stuck at a certain side. And what was very pleasant 15 years ago, wine forward is, oh, we're all aging, our kids have grown up, they've left, not that many people come now, it just feels a bit sameish. Actually what's happened is you've gone down the other side of that curve and you've not really known it. And as you begin to decline, it gets worse faster, you know, it gets steeper and all the rest of it. We, we once got to size, I think we were around, around that size, 120, we started adding new people coming. And around 120, 130 people coming, different dynamics kick in. You see, if you've got a pastor, a leader, and you're paying him, and he's, he's beginning to get to capacity just on relational contacts, so he just can't keep up. He had another 5, another 10, another 15, another 20, another 30, another 40, another 50. No, he can't. He can't do all the work that needs to be done. And so what begins to happen, he feels like, I'm so busy, I'm spinning all these plates. And I, I'm missing people and they're missing me. And, and people begin to groan a bit that the church isn't what it used to be. And we had a real problem with this. We got up to around that size and we got, then we got to top up 150 people. And people were like moaning that the church wasn't what it used to be. And I said, of course it won't. If you're here, 
had about 120 people. But you really liked it when it was 100 people. In the history of your church, the only time it's going to be 100 people again, is 100 people over there and it won't feel the same. 100 people on the way down does not feel the same as 100 people on the way up. Or any, any, any number you like to choose. Uh, some people love it at 50. Uh, you know, small is beautiful, let's plant loads and loads and loads of small churches. That's fine. I, I understand that. I've, you know, been there, done that, read the literature. But, you see, this is one of the... Once you've had a child, that's it. You've got them. You know, unless they die prematurely... They're going to grow and develop and things are going to change and you can never rewind the button back to that magical age when they were 10 years old. You've just got to face the fact that sooner or later, whatever your methodology of coping with the tunnels of chaos, you've got to think this through. Some churches only get to 15 or 20 and then they do that. This isn't, this isn't automatic. Some churches get to 75 and then they begin to do that. Some churches get 100 people, some churches get 500 people and they do that. They stay. I, I, a friend of mine who leads a church, can't tell you where it is, but they've had about 300 people. I, I went there about 20 years ago and one of the chief leaders said, you know, we've been about 300 people. We like that number. It feels comfortable. And we've been 300 people for quite a long time now. And that's great. But see, I thought you plateaued at 300. How many people among, in the city you live in, how many are there? It was about a quarter of a million. And settled at 300, and 300 people even, for two and a half to three decades, it's no fun at all. And I know the senior leader of that church, and he's having to work, he's having to work his socks off to get the church mindset to change. Because they've actually settled for 300, and they're gradually, and it's a slow death at 300, it's a, it's a long, slow decline. But I've watched the church gradually age. The numbers are the same, but the ageing things set in. The number of young families is going down. The number of young people coming and getting converted is going a slow, long day. And the senior leader knows he's got to change that mindset. So this curve, <coughs> this curve can happen whatever size and stage you are. If you don't know it's coming, it can really hit you for six. Because when everybody's like, oh, great, we've seen some growth and it's blessing, you go, yeah, I know. But we're not going to be able to stay here for long. We've got to do, we've got to keep on pressing on. Now, how do you, what do you do? Well, get uh, another little diagram. These, these church growth, right? It's not, at every size where you could have got to 30 people and then declined, to keep growing, there's a little decision made in here, and it's a gospel decision. Okay? In this little place here, this curve is not actually smooth. It's made up of just as the church could have sat up say, I don't know, whatever side you want to have, 25 people, we like this, in a home, let's leave it like that. But you can't, you see. You just cannot stop at the size. Even if the numbers stay the same, everything changes over a period of time. Time, time is the thing that really knocks you. So you make a decision, you make a gospel decision, instead of the curve going like that, you make a gospel decision to grow. A gospel decision to grow up to a different size. Now it could be, you could plant, again, two, a group of 40 plants two twenties. They grow, they do another, you could do it that way around. Or one group says, no, we make a gospel decision. We'll make a gospel decision. We look at what we are, it's nice and comfortable, and we put ourselves out of our comfort zone for the sake of the gospel to do something to grow the gospel, which will affect our church dynamics. Now those gospel decisions, they're not 
like one size fits all. There's no silver bullet, there's no plug and play, there's no you know, cut and paste here. What will work for one church, a gospel decision, so when you get up to say, say you get to 75, and you could have placarded at 75, you go, no, we'll make another gospel decision, <coughs> and it might be we'll hire another staff worker before we can afford to. It might be we find a bigger hall. It, it, it might be we, we you know, spend six months praying for people to be saved and then we gradually see a whole load of them become Christians. Whatever it is, the gospel-shaped decision is a decision courageously to not settle for what we are, but to go with the power and the, the work of the Holy Spirit to see king, people reach. You know, what's our task is to go and grow disciples. It's to get them and grow them. And we want to get them and grow them. And each time where the church could just become comfortable and go, now we're at 100, we're safe, we're safe. We're, we're, you know, we don't have to worry about that horrible sector of the world out there. We go, no, we're going to make another gospel decision. And every church at every size will face this temptation to settle for what we are, but it won't last for long. And this is one of the great challenges of leadership, just when people are kind of like, I really like this, we've grown to 300. Isn't that great, Ray? No, we've got to, we can't stop here. Why can't we stop here, Ray? Because we're just going to consign ourselves to a long, slow death. And there are 100,000 people out there, whatever your community is. So we make another gospel decision. Now what happens is, you keep making those gospel decisions all the way up this. Now, the gospel decision may be to plant churches. It may be to grow one congregation. It may be to multi-service. It may be to... There's loads and loads. But what you mustn't and can't do, the book of Acts will never stand still for long. It kind of gets that stage, you go, yeah, take our breath, here we go again. Here we go again. Now, I don't know where you all are as churches, but I know this leadership, in one sense, one of the challenges of gospel-shaped leadership is this. It's constantly having to take fresh risks. It's constantly having to say, how can we go forward to get and grow disciples? It never feels like I can put my feet up, I can just sit back, chill, relax. There's moments of that, but it won't last for long. Before, what's the next gospel-driven decision? What's the next gospel leadership challenge I face? And in one sense, that's kind of relentless, isn't it? It's relentless. And you think, oh, do I have to be that driven? You see, this is earth, not heaven. This is your one and only chance in the whole of your eternal existence to get and grow disciples. And if you want to kind of feet up, as it were, well, there is a solution to that, isn't it? You take your last breath, relax for the rest of your eternity. You're in the presence of God, no more problems, no more hassle, no more difficult gospel decisions, because you don't need to drive the gospel forward in heaven, do you? But on earth, well, we can encourage each other. And we need to talk together, what would it mean for your church? We're all very different here. We come from very different sized churches at different ages and stages of their lives. But every one of us will know deep down we can settle for where we are and it will feel lovely for a while. But as a leader, let me tell you, if you're a leader of that group, it won't be long before it begins to do that. And that's tough. And let me also tell you this. this is, it is a lot harder to do that on the way down than it is to do that on the way up. You can see that, can't you? 
Once the momentum of like, uh-oh, people are leaving, or we're raging, or all our kids have left, or we've not seen a conversion for ten years, once that settles in and becomes normal and acceptable and it's okay, it's much harder to turn it around. Here's another scary thing. Churches on this part of this curve are often flush with money. Churches on this part of the curve have never got enough money, never enough resources, never enough resources to do what you really like to do. Churches around here, if you look at the stats, especially the finances, they're often quite healthy. Why? Because these people, middle-aged, they pay their mortgages off, their kids have left home. They've often, somebody's died and left a load of money to the church. There are churches I know in London living off trust funds from 300 years ago. Hardly any people, ton of money. It's like nuts. But you, but you see, don't, don't settle. So well, we're okay financially. Financial healthiness is often a, sign, a significant indicator of church decline and vice versa. That's a curve worth knowing about, isn't it? So what does it require leadership? Well, it requires a bit of nous, it requires a lot of courage, it requires, is it, Don Piper just written that new book, um, Risk, I haven't read it yet, but he's talking about faith, growth, it's all to do with taking non-stupid risks. Okay. Where do I want to go next? Well, I just want to give some sort of, okay, how do we do that? What kind of things can we do as a leadership? And I'm going to take a, a particular passage of the Bible. Before we get there, uh, men are from where? Mars. 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 Venus, what can't men do? They can't multitask. They can't multitask, except they've got to. Because gospel-shaped leadership is not one-dimensional man. I went, I went to a conference, um, I better not say too much where it was, but there's a group of specialists, actually they specialise in evangelism. All right then, it was Association of Evangelist Conference. <laughs> but as I listened, I mean they're passionate, brilliant guys, but I did feel it was one dimensional. It's like the only thing that matters is we've got to evangelise people. And of course that game became like, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, give tracts out, knock on doors and all sorts of stuff like that. Okay, I know where you're coming from. But it felt a little bit one-dimensional. And a New Testament church leader is multitasking. If Christ, if the gospel, if, if Christ and the gospel has touched your life, you will want to, and in, as an individual disciple, you will want to become like the Saviour who loves you, don't you? He is the altogether lovely one, and I want to be like him. I, Paul says, forgetting what's past, I want to grow up into Christ. And somehow to attain that likeness of Jesus as the Holy Spirit works in my life. And we taught this, we want to grow to maturity. At the same time, if I have been saved by the servant king, I want to become a servant myself. I want to serve my fellow Christians. And we talk, I talk about ministry. You want to get involved in some kind of service to other Christians. And at the same time, if I've known that I'm saved by grace in spite of who I am, in fact, in the face of who I am, not because I'm keen and knowledgeable, excuse me, moral, uh, sensitive, spiritual, none of those things, a sinner saved by grace, and I really understand what that means. I believe Jonas Gospel can touch it, can touch me, can touch anybody, can't it? And I want to I want to bring that gospel to other people in mission. 
Now, as an individual disciple, I don't say, oh, well, I'll do maturity for 10 years before I go and serve my fellow Christians. So it's almost a contradiction in terms, isn't it? A mature Christian will be a serving Christian. And I can't say, well, you know, when I've served the church for 15 years, oh, I might start worrying about those people who are outside of the church. No, no. Those things happen at the same time. Uh, theological, if you like, one of, uh, justification for this multi-thing. Uh, John Frames, great American writer, he's written tons and tons of big books, and he talks a lot about triperspectivalism. Three things happening at the same time. Now, some of you know Rick Warren, he's written some great books, uh, Purpose Driven Church, Purpose Driven Life. In this Purpose Driven Church, he has this great baseball diamond thing, which is really helpful. You know, new people come in and they join the, the crowd and then they gradually become part of the core and so on. And he has you moving around the baseball diamond. You, you, you know, you become a Christian, then you join the church and you grow a bit, then you serve a bit, then you reach out a bit and you go out to mission. That's fine, but that journey is about ten years. I, I, I'm not sure. I can understand like the process, but you know, you'd really want a new Christian to start telling their friends straight away, wouldn't you? You see, you, I've been forgiven. Let me go. I'm a beggar who's found a bread. Well, what do I do? I tell the other beggars where the bread is. When do I start? Well, straight away. It, it, I, I don't want to wait ten years. Now I know I need to learn lots, but you see, this the, the problem about his step-by-step process. Is, I just don't think that's how it is in the New Testament. The early Christians have been forgiven and telling the other people, oh, God is amazing, he's forgiven my sins, he could forgive you your sins. So maturity, mission and service is like, as an individual Christian, I want to commit to that. Now, here's the thing. Many leaders think their job is to exhort people to do these things. I had a sabbatical about ten years ago three months break, I was very tired after 20 years of sort of working hard in one church do you know what I heard every week like challenges would be a polite way to put it exhortation is a polite way to put it, I basically get ticked off every Sunday, <laughs> everywhere I went was you've got to come closer to God you've got to be holier, you've got to be more, more. you know I was thinking about oh, I fancy going surfing in Cornwall tomorrow morning Monday you know, and the sermons told me to give my best to God, how could ever Bodyboarding in Cornwall will be the best for God. You don't know, sermons like that. Church after church after church, all over the place. Evangelical churches believe in justification by faith, gospel of grace, but actually challenging people to give more and more and more and more. As if somehow, if you shout louder, Christians will get more into it. Was actually, you just get worn down by it. Most Christians want to, and know they should be, committed to be liking Jesus, like Jesus serving their fellow Christians and, and sharing good news with others. What leaders have got to do is to facilitate that. It's not enough to bottom up say, come on. We also need top down say, well, how can I help that happen? And in the New Testament you see church leaders facilitating these three things. So, maturity, well Paul writes letters and he sends leaders and he organises Christians. He facilitates Christian growth. That's what the New Testament letters are all about. Facilitating Christian growth. And churches facilitate, leaders facilitate, Christians serving one another. Now I don't want to say too much about that because I want to concentrate on that um, next time in our seminar. But the one I want to really concentrate on is this corner here. This facilitating the church reaching out in mission. If you just turn to Acts 16 for a while.
this is sort of acknowledgement or blame, but I, I went to a talk by Tim Keller, I think it was sort of early 2000-ish in, uh, in London, and it just was like, oh, Ray, how stupid could you be? How could you have not seen that? It's so obvious. Duh. Um, but, but there you are. You can read Acts 16 many a time and miss all the important bits. But uh, Acts 16 is a really important section for leaders facilitating gospel-driven church growth. This is a really this is the, this is leadership in action, and and it's exciting to see leaders in action doing a great job. And Luke writes this not that we might go, oh wow, isn't Paul amazing, or isn't, isn't Philippi a wonderful place? I wish I'd lived there. It's more by saying, well, this is what God does when He's at work. And he's at work in your church. Look for, look for these markers. Now, it's, it's significant, Acts 16, for all kinds of reasons, but notice that strategically, the early opening bit, Act, uh, verse 6 onwards, Paul and his companions are kept from places in Asia Minor, Turkey, modern-day Turkey. They tried to go there, they're not allowed to. They tried to go there, they couldn't do that. We don't know exactly how the Holy Spirit did that, but they weren't allowed to. But then, positively, they had this call in the, uh, in the night, a vision of a man of Macedonia crying, begging, come and help us. And we, we, we uh, immediately realised God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Who is them? Them is us. This is the gospel coming to Europe. This is the gospel coming to our neck of the woods. It's a, short, it's a short journey. It's a small step for a missionary. But it is a giant leap for Christianity. The gospel comes to Europe. And Europe was as tough then as it is now. It's full of people worshipping all kinds of other things. Living for all kinds of other things. It is full of, of wealth. And the corruption that wealth and power brings. It, it's full of people who have no moral compass. Apart from strength and honour. The kind of, you know, stick with your mates and, you know, beat down anybody that opposes you. It, it's full of what we would call gross immorality, which was completely normal. Uh, things that we would regard as sad and sorrowful and appalling were just, that's how it is. It's Europe then, Europe today. And the gospel comes to Europe. Then what Luke brilliantly does, which Keller pointed out, is that Luke gives us three conversion stories. And they all reach by the word of God, look carefully, but they're all different. And, he, and I, I didn't ever pick that up. And I, I wasn't really sure that the slave girl was converted at all. It doesn't say she became a Christian and got baptized, you see. But till Keller pointed out that a Jewish man prays every morning, that he thanks God, the creator of the universe, that he was not made a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. And as soon as he said that, I thought, oh, of course, these are not random stories. They're three stories chosen to illustrate what the gospel can do when it's really at work. And we ought to learn, because the gospel comes to these people in different ways. So if a, a gospel church, its leadership needs to take Acts 16 incredibly seriously and say, are we shaping our leadership and our church along the lines of what Luke is saying, don't miss this, dummies. This is, look, I'm telling you this so clearly. The structure is as clear as crystal, except I'm stupid. It takes, you know, a lot of knocking into my head. But, oh, of course, of course. Now, it seems to me that the uh, uh, Lydia, yeah, she's under the word of God. She gets converted. 
Notice how the text tells us not, it's not Paul's brilliance or the church's razzmatazz, fantastic worship. It is God opened her heart. And that is really important, isn't it? Whoever you are, O leader, only God can open a heart. Uh, my daughter is a doctor. Uh, there's one room in the hospital she's absolutely useless in, and that's the mortuary. There's nothing she can do in the mortuary. She can, she can prescribe, she can advise, but there's nothing she can do in the mortuary. And we're told, as preachers, that people are dead in their sins and trespasses. Unless God gives them a new birth, they cannot see. They cannot, they will not. We need the miraculous intervention of God. But that comes in word settings. When, when God's word comes, you were given a new birth to a living hope. As you heard. So we, we don't separate out the new birth from gospel preaching. Our confidence is as we speak, God opens blind eyes, he opens hearts. But it's not because of our brilliance. That's the first lesson. Now from that little story there, we, we at home thought, right, okay, we need to get people under the ministry of the word. How are we going to do that today? She was already, if you can think of a journey, I think some of you forget this. On that day, you think of a journey from north to ten, she crossed the journey, so she came to faith on that morning. But that morning, she was already probably at eight, if I can put it on that Richter scale. She was already eight. Where was she? She was at a worship meeting, she was listening, she respected the Bible. I mean, it's a Saturday morning early, she's a businesswoman. Now, what do you normally do on a Saturday morning early? In bed. But she got up early to get herself down, not many people there. She already believes in God. She's already a person who prays. She's a long way down the journey when the gospel comes to her. Now, there are people in our culture who are 8, 9 and 10, as it were. But yeah, I believe in God. I've been reading the Bible. I do think Jesus is the Son of God. I'm not yet, I don't know how to become a Christian. You know, I'm like that. About a month ago, walked in, so I've been reading the Bible for the last couple of years, believe it, but I don't know how to become a Christian. Oh, wow, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, come in. Yeah, you see, a lot of our folks in our culture today are not at 8, 9, and 10. They're, they're at 1, 2, 3. I mean, some of my hockey mates, I find, they are off the scale over there. You know, there are minus a thousand, some of them, I think. But, that's where people are now. The church, this passage teaches us we want to get people under the ministry of the word. But to get them under the ministry of the word, sometimes we need events or situations which kind of maybe move them from two to four or four to six. What we talked about is creating a come and see culture, an invite culture, where you invite people to come and see. Now why do we call it come and see rather than come and hear? Because when they first come, they don't listen. It's what they, it's what they see. I came along to your carol service. Oh, I was amazed how many people were there. Well, what did the bloke say? Don't know. But I just, you're so friendly, so normal. And there was loads of, and I felt welcome. I thought I could bring my kids back next year. Well, you mean not coming for a year? Well, no, because I don't go to church, but I, I really like your carol service. Well, that person who's done that, to you may not look much, but to a bloke, He's come to a carol service. He's just gone from two to four on that scale. We had a chap at Christmas. He came to our carol service. He had several stiff whiskies before he dared come. 
He was so frightened. He'd never been to church in his life. He was absolutely petrified. His wife dragged him. She said, I'm sorry, Ray. He's, he's probably drunk because he had, he had to have so many stiff whiskies just to sum up enough courage to come. But he liked it. In the haze. <laughs> <laughs> well, God willing, he'll come again. Oh, we've got to go and see him in Psalm 7. You see, for many people... Well, one guy... Okay, this is drawing is pathetic, but okay. Uh, coolest aircraft carrier, so this is like this. Here's an aircraft carrier. Here's aeroplanes. Okay, I know. Hey, this is the best I can do. Right, now, aircraft carrier. Richard Merrin used to work with a load of guys. He said, the sailors see an aircraft maybe half a mile out, and it comes in lands. But the process starts over the horizon. We track them in on radar, 20, 25 miles away. They start the sort of, you know, three degree glide path, you know, maybe doing three or four hundred knots. And they gradually come in, they're tracked in, and then we see them, their lights start coming on, and then the last sort of, you know, half a mile the sailors see the planes coming and they land. Now, when you think of people making this journey, this is like Christianity Explored, or, you know, one-to-one seeker Bible study stuff, or Sunday morning evangelist, I don't know. That's at the sort of seven, eight, nine, ten. But some people, that's not where they're at. And he said, what we need to do, particularly with men, we need stuff way back here. You invite blokes to some friendship things. Curry night out, uh, paintballing, I don't know, watching the football. Then then you have some things maybe where there's a taster. might be a sports quiz and somebody gives a testimony. We we had a a meal recently with uh, an ex-police chief constable he was fantastic. A couple hundred people listening to him. But the people that come to that were, were tasting. They're not yet seeking. And then you might have near the time. And he said, now you need this because most people, Lydia, we know it's a miracle that got opened her heart, but her backstory would have been maybe a mum who told her about the God that Jews worshipped. I don't know. An uncle, a friend in Philippi. There'd have been a whole load of people along the way that God's used to move her from her original norm up to around 8, 9 and 10 for that Saturday morning. Paul reaped the fruit, didn't he? She was low-hanging fruit. Uh, John Chapman used to say this. He said, people say, I'm a great evangelist. He said, look, I'm like an old cow in an orchard in September. Whatever I bump into just falls off. Because the ripening process has been going on for months. Now, if you want 8, 9 and 10, you want Lydia's, you need an invite culture where you start, come and see. Now, carol services are great. A lot of people despise carol services because, oh, yeah, yeah, all these people come and they only come because it's Christmas. That is a huge win. You can invite almost anything that moves to Christmas. My Muslim neighbours, I can ask them. They love Christmas. They give us Christmas presents. They don't mind us asking. They say no, but they're grateful for being asked. Thanks for thinking of us. We can't come, so thank you for asking. When a whole church... Start saying, you know, the people next to us, the people across the road, the people I work with, the people I, I see in the local shop, we can invite hundreds of people to a carol service. Some will come. Even the ones that say, no, well, thank you for asking me, I'd really kind of you to ask and have some relational contact. That is a one, two, three type event. And some of those people who come now, in ten years' time, might be coming to your seekers groups. And because most churches don't put much effort in at one, two, three, four, they don't have much of an invite culture. To sort of friendship or seeker kind of It's all, all or nothing. You know, I want to meet with you and I want to read the whole of Romans by next week. Is that okay with you? <laughs> You're not going to get very far. Because most people aren't there, aren't ready. Now, if you have someone who's, oh yeah, great. I read Greek. Is that okay with you? Oh. 
See, I did that once to Jehovah's Witness. I've never been bad. I shouldn't have done it, sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fire, right, fire. But can you see what I'm saying? Now, Lydia helps us to come and see. All right. What about the slave girl? What do you know about her? Well, she couldn't be further, she couldn't be more different, could she? I mean, she earns money, but not for herself. Lydia is a, a very prosperous businesswoman. Slave girl is economically a slave, but demonically a slave. Why is it no good having a culture, a, a strategy of come and see? Because demonically possessed slave girls are nobody's friends. They're not in your acquaintanceship circle. It's a bit like saying to you, how many, how many close friends are the prostitutes in Oxford of yours? And if the guy's hands went up, it's like, okay, pastor, visit now. You know? You, you say, because you don't. How many drug-addicted prostitutes do you really know well that you didn't... You say, I don't know any. Or, 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 or who are the local guys that they're pimps? I don't know. We don't know, you see. There's another group of people that Luke says, get reached in a different way. She's reached... We've called it care and serve. She's reached, Keller argues, she's reached by deeds of compassion and mercy and power. That if you like, you confront her felt needs, in this case it cost Paul a severe beating. He knew it would cost her. He knew it would cost. As soon as you challenge entrenched money, vested interest, it's always going to be a difficult one and Paul knows it's coming. And, and, and it's after many days when he could stand it no longer, he confronts the economic and demonic slavery. Now, we don't have demonically possessed slave girls in Bedford that I know of, but we do have people trapped. Things that grip them. Things that enslave them in different ways. All communities do. And it seems to me that if we want to reach them, then the, the, the strategy we've, we've got, our second one, we call come and see, is one way. We talk about care and serve. Caring for people in the community. Doing them good. Do good to all men, especially to the household of faith. Doing people good because it's good in itself to get somebody out of debt. Some kind of divorce recovery to keep a family together. Some kind of addictive help to people who are gripped by substance abuse. You won't be able to do all that's out there. But churches maybe. We have a church in Bedford that works hard with the homeless. Another one that offers uh, counselling. Another one that does a, an abortion counselling and support. Uh, there's another one that runs a food bank. We got involved uh, a couple of things that we did in the community to help people with their felt needs, their practical needs, doing them good, helping them to be free from that which trapped them. We particularly worked with debt um, and we worked with a thing called Christians Against Poverty. And in that context, relationships are built up. And in the relationships, some of them will want to take that relationship further into telling me more about the God that has freed me from that which has trapped me for years. And, and that is a different way in. It's a different way of reaching people. <coughs> Most of them are poor. Uh, not all, but a lot of them are, are poor. They, they've come from incredibly disadvantaged backgrounds but it's a, a means of reaching the kind of people you wouldn't reach just through your acquaintanceship circle or what we call friendship evangelism the final one is the, what we call go and tell how does the jailer get saved well because he sees a bloke 
reacting in a way that he's never seen blokes before. It's a long story, but he is a man who believes in strength and honour. Never think that when he's about to kill himself, he's a coward. No, he's a strong man. Remember at the beginning of Gladiator, just before all those sort of Romans unleash all those missiles, what do they say? They bang each other's shields. What do they say? They strengthen honour. Strengthen honour. This man is a man of strength and honour, and he feels ashamed that he has failed as a man. Rather than live with the shame of failure, he's prepared to kill himself. He cannot stand the thought of saying, I failed. There's loads of guys out like that today, aren't there? Loads of blokes. How do you reach guys like that? You get alongside them, and they see something different. There's a man called Dave Bennett. He did a master's... uh, a thesis on reaching people. He, he, he interviewed over 400 adult converts. 90% of them knew a Christian before they became a Christian themselves. 90%. That's why come and see is so important. A relationship contact with a Christian was 90% important. 82% said I was invited to something. Second most important thing that God used to bring people to faith today First one was praying. So when, we, when I became a Christian, I realised Christians have been praying for me. Second thing, they invited me to think. So that's really important. Go and tell the number one thing that men picked up. What was the most significant thing in your convert, in your conversion? I, I knew a bloke and I admired his lifestyle. There was something about his lifestyle that was different and, and I really wanted to find that. Now what does that mean? It means that Christian blokes have got to intentionally spend time with non-Christian blokes if you want men saved. Okay? Men typically don't first come to courses. They don't just turn up to church, dragging their wives along, saying, come on, darling, we must go to church. We need some spirituality in our lives. It's never like that, Harvey, is it? Well, maybe when they get converted it is, but not beforehand. But they do notice difference amongst Christian men. Now, what is the great problem with Christian men? Christian men love to spend time the Christian men. I, I don't want to tread on any toes. Maybe I will. Ouch, here it goes. But if you've got a church, you know, we've got a church football team because, you know, the guys don't swear too much and, you know, <coughs> we don't foul too badly because we're all Christians. Stop it. Go and play football with guys that do swear. And when they tackle you, you don't swear back. I play golf badly and uh, I, I hit three balls straight into they plop, plop, plop. And I said, oops, a daisy. <laughs> and the bloke I was playing with, Alan, he, he went, beep, 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 is that the beep, beep, beep you can do, right? Don't you ever lose your temper? And I said, well, Al, yeah, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm just like you, forgiven, I'm a forgiven person, and it's just changed my perspective a bit. And you see, he saw, now that's, he saw, and Alan and I, he's an atheist, he, I gave him uh, Keller's reason for God, he said, he gave me it back a few months, he said, I didn't want to read it, I'd be persuaded by it. In fact, I went and read Richard Dawkins just to bolster my unbelief. (laughs) Fail again. But you see, we play hockey, we we talk lots, and over the years, Alan has, he'll confide in me now, and I pray for him and so on. But you see, that go and tell is really important. You never know when it's going to be needed. Could you share your faith simply in two minutes? Jargon-free, easy to understand. Let me tell you, if you think your church members can, you're wrong. No matter how many sermons they've heard of yours, they, unless they help just explain their own faith, they won't be able to do it very well. And secondly, can they explain the gospel? 
simply and clearly? Answer again, probably not. Now, it doesn't mean we do tons and tons of heavy evangelism training. We just need people not to be embarrassed, not to be ashamed. They can be embedded in their culture, being who they are, and letting their faith just come to the surface, listening, talking, asking questions. But a whole lot of stuff is going to go on. As a leader, you want to encourage these three strategies because you just reach different kinds of people. Now, many churches have all their eggs in some kind of sub-section of this called children's work. That's it. There's no care and serve. They don't think of, could we do something in our community to reach people that we don't befriend? And there's not much confidence, there's not much going and telling going on. How can a, a leadership nurture and facilitate these three things? Well, let me tell you, the go and tell in your home groups always say, who can we pray for of your friends? Has anybody had a conversation, just even had a good chat this week with somebody far from God? And as a group starts... It's normal to talk about that as a group. Remember how Paul said, I have unceasing anguish in my heart while my own flesh and blood are outside of Christ. And what do I do? I pray. Romans 10, 1, I pray to God. That just becomes normal. Christians think it's normal to pray for people who are not yet praying for themselves. And in my home group, whatever size your church, that's a relational size group that you can pray lots. It becomes normal. So you begin to facilitate these three strategies. And over a period of time, you might just see if you create an invite culture where it becomes normal to have hundreds of people at a carol service and loads of people perhaps coming along to a church picnic in the park or, you know, paintballing 25 guys turning <coughs> It becomes normal to say, do you know what, we're working with some of the most disadvantaged people in our community and okay, they're resource, resource demanding, but w- would heaven be one without people like them? No. And it becomes normal to say, fantastic conversation with a bloke at work this week. A brilliant conversation. That becomes normal. And the church begins. Now the church, gospel-shaped churches, gospel-shaped leaders, need to learn a lot from Acts 16. Because the biggest problem in Britain today is not that there aren't gospel churches all over the place, it's that they've stalled and they're growing. They've become happy with whatever they're at. And said, so, well, that's okay now. We, we're no longer one family from extinction. We've just about paid the pastor. It's okay. It's not okay. Because the command is to go and grow. Get them and grow them. And there are just millions of them. There's millions of people like I was, like you were. Outside of Christ, without God, without hope. And gospel-shaped leadership in the book of Acts is those scary white, white water records where you're not in control really, leaders. It's just like, oh, this is scary. But I'm not prepared to stay in this safe, calm, you know, easy bit here. We're going to go to the next level, whatever that is for you. And all the time, how can I facilitate growth to maturity, serving in ministry, and above all, above all in our culture, we are missional churches. We are not Christian England. We are missionaries. Every single church, every single Christian. We are heaven's outposts, shedding light into a dark world.